Brothers and sisters in faith, uh, good morning again, and welcome to the third sermon in our October sermon series, which as we mentioned at the beginning of the service, this series is called Lost and Found. Uh, last week, we took a break with our guest preacher, so if you can think back to two weeks ago, which is a really long time, a lot of things have happened in my life in the last two weeks, I can only imagine in yours, but two weeks ago, and then three weeks ago is when we started. So at the beginning of this sermon series, the first sermon, we talked about the horror of being lost, like the terror, the panic, and then the joy of being found and the relief. So then the week after that, we talked about the horror of losing something and the, the panic when you're searching for it and then the joy and relief when you find it. So we've kind of hit it from both angles, but we're like we're, we've, all, we've wrapped around this topic of being lost and found. And now that we've got this topic in our minds today, in our third sermon, we get to dig in a little bit deeper. And I think today one of the interesting parts about this parable we're going to discuss is that who exactly is lost and who exactly is found might not always be as easy to identify as, as we think. Uh, appearances can be deceiving. So our sermon text today comes from Luke chapter 15. And it's the same setting as the last sermon. So Jesus was talking to a group of religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the good people, and I'll put that in quotes for a reason, the good people, and they were mad at Jesus because he had been spending so much time with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the bad people, again in air quotes. So they're mad at him for this, and Jesus is trying to help the religious leaders understand like God's heart to reach the lost. And so we studied, in the last sermon of this series, we studied two parables. Uh, the search for the lost sheep and the search for the lost coin. Both of these are searches for something that is of great value. But today, we have the parable searching for something much more important than a sheep or a coin. It is the parable of the lost son. So, we get into it. Jesus continued his dialogue. He says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So we're only a few verses in, but this is already quite the story, is it not? Because first and foremost, can you believe the nerve of this kid? When he says, Dad, give me my share of the estate. Do you understand what he's asking? Like This would be all the amount of wealth and property that he would get when his dad dies. He's essentially saying, Dad, I've been waiting for you to get old and sick and die. And I've been waiting, and I'm just tired of waiting. Can I please just have my money now? Can you believe the nerve of this kid? Then his dad gives it to him. So that's quite shocking. And then maybe most shocking of all is the way that he uses it. We read here that he squandered his father's wealth in wild living. We're going to learn later in the story that this was essentially partying with prostitutes is where this money was going. 
But keep in mind, like this money represents the father's entire life of working and saving and investing wisely and carefully so he can set up his kids for success. And maybe you, you guys think of what your parents have tried to do to set you up for success. Or maybe if you're a parent or a grandparent, you think of the way that you have aligned some of your whole life choices are in mind of how can I, how can I give my kids a good start? How can I set them up so that they're maybe going to be able to have some opportunities that I didn't have? And yet this kid has cashed in his half of the estate. He's blowing through it like it's an endless amount of money. And he's using it on wicked and shameful things. Again... Can you believe the nerve of this kid? And then finally, he gets what he deserves. He runs out of money, runs out of food, so he hires himself out to a foreigner, which would have been an incredible disgrace for a Jewish person at this time. And he, then he takes a job feeding pigs, which would have made him ceremonially unclean every single day as a Jewish person living at this time. And yet he's so hungry and desperate that he wishes he could eat the pig food, but he can't snitch any of it or he's going to get fired. And do we feel sorry for him? No, we do not. At this point in the story, he's getting exactly what he deserves. What a selfish, entitled kid, right? So the first point here, the sin of the lost son is outrageous. And this is the point of the story as Jesus is telling, telling it to his listeners. Like, what in the world is wrong with this kid? He's sinned against his father. He has sinned against his God. He's broken probably every one of the Ten Commandments. You could walk through that list. And again, we don't feel sorry for him at all. I don't. He deserves everything that's coming to him. But now he hits rock bottom. And when he hits rock bottom, something changes in this young man's mind and in his heart. And what changes is the way he thinks about his dad. At this point, rock bottom, he stops thinking about his dad as someone he can use to get what he wants. And he starts instead thinking about his dad as maybe the only person who would possibly help him in this mess that he himself has created. So when he hits rock bottom, this young man changes his thinking and he turns. And by the way, that is exactly, maybe stepping out of the story for a minute, that's the Bible's exact definition of repentance. To change our thinking and to turn. To turn away from our sin and to turn back to God. And so now, back into the story, Jesus is fleshing out this idea of repenting and turning, and he gives us, he shows us the internal dialogue of the son as he's thinking through, what might it be like to actually go home to my dad? So here's what the young man is thinking. When he comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. This is the plan. So he got up, he went to his father, and his listeners to the story, we are waiting, if you haven't heard the end of it, we're, we're waiting with anticipation to see what is the dad going to do. Is he going to tell his son, you're dead to me? Uh, is he going to tell his son, you're not welcome in this house until you pay back every penny that you have wasted? Is he going to completely ignore his son and not acknowledge him in any way? Any of those reactions would be totally fair. 
Any of those reactions would be fully deserved. But instead, the father does something completely unexpected. It's the biggest plot twist in the story. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Can you believe it? After everything his spoiled, ungrateful son has done, while he is still a long way off, the father goes out to him. He doesn't even wait for his son to open the gate. He doesn't wait for his son to walk up the sidewalk. He doesn't wait for his son to come onto the porch. He doesn't wait for his son to knock on the door. The father runs out to him as fast as possible, filled with compassion, throws his arms around him and kisses him. And you notice the son tries to start his speech that he has planned. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So here comes my request, which is going to be to be your servant. But the father cuts him off and doesn't even let him finish. He just shouts out to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, which sounds super violent. But this is like bring out the steak and put it on the grill, right? Um, This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so before the young man is even able to begin his apology and his speech, they just begin to celebrate because he's back. I don't know what the young man exactly expected was going to happen when he got home, but it certainly wasn't this. And so this is the second point. The father's love is outrageous. It it makes you angry because it's not fair. The father's love is even more outrageous than the sin of his child. And yet with that sentence, we've got a perfect summary of the Christian gospel, don't we? The father's love is even more outrageous than the sin of his child. Because, now we put ourselves into the story, we all, like this son, we all find ways to squander the gifts that God has given to us. The time that we have, the money that we have, the connections that we have, the resources that we have. We tend to use all of God's blessings to serve ourselves, and we use them to sin against God, we use them to sin against other people. And then when life gets hard and we hit rock bottom, sometimes by God's grace we hit rock bottom, we repent and change our thinking. And instead of thinking of God as someone we can use to get whatever we want, we start to think of God as maybe the only one who would help us out of this mess we've gotten ourselves into. So we come straggling back to God with our tail between our legs and we've got our speech all planned out. And we've been here as Christians. We've got our speech all planned out. We say, God, if you forgive me and if you help me, I promise I'll never do something like this again. God, if you forgive me and if you help me, I promise I'm going to go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. God, if you forgive me and help me, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to work my way back into your good graces one day at a time. I'm going to, I'm going to, just give me a chance to prove it to you, God. And I don't know what we expect is going to happen, but it's certainly not this. Our Father, again, goes out to us. He runs to us. He forgives us immediately. And he does it not just because arbitrarily he's decided that this sin he's going to ignore. He does it for the sake of of his own son, his original son, Jesus Christ. 
who volunteered to come and suffer an eternity of punishment in our place so that we can be rewarded for the good and perfect life that he lived. And Jesus has done it. He's done it already. We sang in our song of forgiveness, Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay most of it, and you still have to prove it. He paid it all. Uh, Paul wrote in one of his letters, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. And John wrote in one of his letters, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Every time we sin and turn back to God, he runs out to us and fully forgives us immediately. Every time. Simply by his grace, without any action required on our part, and we just say, wow, what a father. What a father. So it's not, it's not hard to see why this story is so famous, I think. This is like the heart of the gospel of God's love for human beings. But the story is not over. When many people think of this parable, they call it the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, the wandering son. But you remember how the story started? There was a man who had two sons. So who's the other son? Well, we don't meet him until the end of the story. We don't meet the other son until forgiveness has already been poured out and the celebration has already begun. The younger son is forgiven and welcomed. He can hardly believe it. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, working hard for his dad, where he had been the whole time. Working hard in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, hey, what's going on? Well, your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, and he's mad at his father. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed a single one of your orders, yet you never even gave me a little young goat so I could have a small version of the party with my friends. And now, he doesn't say my brother. He says, this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. Can you believe this? He comes home. You killed a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You're my son too. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he's found. It's not hard to grasp the implications of this parable when you think of who Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees, the good religious people, are upset that Jesus is spending all the time with those tax collectors and prostitutes. They are the older brother doing all the things, doing all the things that they're supposed to do, and in their heart they are offended and angry that Jesus, who's supposed to be a teacher from God, would reach out to those people and run to those people who are not doing the things that they're supposed to do. The older brother has his own problem. It's a problem of pride and comparison and self-righteousness. And we, I think, understand where that older brother is coming from sometimes. I know that I feel like this older brother sometimes, and maybe you do too. This could look many different ways. Here is just one of them. 
that you can have this thought process that says, here we are going to church, serving God, giving our time and money, avoiding the sinful pleasures of the world, putting in the work. And this is a question that gets asked all the time in Bible basics class. How could it be possibly fair that somebody else could live this entire life of selfishness and open rebellion against God and diving into sinful pleasure and doing whatever they want and then five minutes before they die on their deathbed they could just repent and it would all be forgiven? How is this possibly fair? Well, that's an easy question. It's not fair. Right, kids? I don't know if the kids are still listening anymore. The kids were all over this. Kids are all about fairness and justice and equity. And our kids demonstrated to us this morning, grace is not fair. Forgiveness is not fair. For God to put all human beings in the same basket and cover us equally with the righteousness of Christ is not fair. But if anybody should be complaining about not fair, it's not us, it's Jesus. The one who lived a holy life, serving God, avoiding the pleasures of the world, putting in the work with absolute perfection. And he is the one who gets crucified on the cross. And meanwhile, we who have wandered from God in so many ways and sinned against God in so many ways, we get to be rewarded with this perfect life in heaven, a life for perfect people, a life that God has prepared for us through Jesus. From Jesus' perspective, of all people, God's grace is not fair. But like we said, it's not fair, but it is beautiful. And it's beautiful from every angle. Grace is beautiful when we're like the younger son, and we've wandered so far from God or we've done something that we're so upset about that we wonder if God could possibly forgive us and accept us. And yet, while we are still miles from home, the Father goes out to us and throws his arms around us and wraps us up in unconditional love. Grace is also beautiful when we're like the older son. The times in our life when maybe we have not wandered in our actions but we've wandered in our thoughts and it's been into thoughts of pride and thinking that we are better than other people just because our sinful nature has not shown itself in the particular way that their sinful nature has shown itself. And so for those times in our life when we're standing stubbornly outside the party with our arms folded, offended at how unfair it all is, what does the Father do? He goes out to us. This is something I noticed. I've read this parable probably dozens of times. I never noticed it until writing this sermon that the father goes out to both of them. The younger son is still miles away. The father sprints out there and we see that. We get that. But the older son, standing out in the shadows, everybody else is inside, inside rejoicing and the older son is off base in his pride and the father leaves the party and he goes out to him as well. The father keeps going out to all of his sons, keeps going out to all of his children. The Father has grace and forgiveness for all of us. Because God knows we all need it. We all need it. And so today, God's Word does for us what it does every single time we hear God's Word. It meets us exactly where we are. Jesus' parable met the Pharisees where they were 
it met the tax collectors and prostitutes where they were. And God had his warning and God had his grace for each of them. And so it is for us. God's word meets you exactly where you are. If you're at a spot in life where you've wandered from God, you've done things you shouldn't, you're crushed with guilt, God's word is here to assure you that no matter what you've done, your father is here with open arms, ready to pour out his forgiveness so that he can celebrate with you, not just now, but for eternity. And if, in life, you're feeling that you have been trapped in the sin of pride and comparison, if you feel that you've been the one looking down on other people and feeling superior to everybody else, God's word reminds you that you don't deserve his grace any more than anyone. None of us deserve his grace any more than each other, but he gives it to us anyway. God has grace and mercy for every single person because God knows we all need it. And so God's outrageous mercy is the great equalizer between all human beings. And it covers over all of our sins, whatever they may be, and it gives all of us this status in life now as God's dear children. It gives all of us uh, this hope of an inheritance one day, an eternal inheritance in heaven. And finally, it motivates us. It motivates us to live a life that shows love to others just as outrageously and unexpectedly as we have been loved by our God. And may God grant that to each one of us for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.